welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Always want to make you guys feel welcome. I know podcasting is this weird nether world where people come and go and you find new shows and you drop old ones and always do feel genuinely happy to hear from new people saying they found the show. So, um, And those of you who continue to support it, thank you so much for that continued support and for your continued support of Counterpunch. I I say this every week in front of every episode, but I really do mean it, that Counterpunch, it really means the world to me, and I think it it means a lot to a lot of people. Um, This is an outlet that's been doing what it does for 25 years now, and uh, really trying to be that outpost in the wilderness, that independent outlet that you can go to, that you can trust for the kind of analysis that you just won't get anywhere else. So uh, a subscription to the print magazine is really a great way to keep Counterpunch going, to keep it printing on paper, to keep this magazine as well as website functioning in the way that it does as these things become ever more expensive. So Counterpunch, uh, you can go to the website, you can get a subscription to the magazine, you can make a donation using the PayPal, you can make it over the phone, whatever's most convenient for you, that is all very appreciated. And um, also just a little plug for my other work, you can also find a bunch more stuff from me, podcasts, articles, a whole lot more at patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Uh, icky self-promotion out of the way. I would like to turn to my guest today. Very happy to welcome him back to the show. One of my go-to sources for political analysis, somebody whose um, understanding perspective on the world I know and trust and really do look for. Uh, J.P. Sotilli, the News Vandal, is with me again. Newsvandal.com is the website, the best newsletter, daily newsletter that you will find anywhere. News Vandal, J.P. Satilli, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Eric. And uh, if I'm the the best you found, maybe you should look a little harder. <laughs> well, that is the kind of hard-hitting, self-deprecating analysis <laughs> that I look right. for. Right. So you've really just proven the point there, JP. So um, let's let's get down to business here. Boy, oh, yeah. we have a lot to talk about. We are chatting here in the evening of Thursday, September 19th. You guys are listening some point after Monday the 23rd. Uh, a lot's happened in the last few days. Um, JP, we had this uh, really quite monumental attack uh, on Saudi Arabia on these oil facilities. As of now, it doesn't seem to be widely disputed among the U.S. intelligence community that Iran carried out this attack. Globally, there does seem to be some discussion about whether or not that's true, entirely true, somewhere in between. I want to just start out by asking you your initial reactions to this attack in Saudi Arabia. How do you read the attack itself and the immediate aftermath? Wow. um, A lot there. As to the origin of it, it does look, everything that I'm reading in the last 48 to 24 hours, even in the last eight hours, there was an interesting piece on um, um, modern diplomacy. It does look like it came from the north. There seems to be a lot of agreement on that, potentially out of Iraq. So it does look like it's coming from a proxy. Now, whether it's the Houthis or not is up for debate. The Houthis claimed responsibility initially, which I guess makes a lot of sense in terms of their attempt to try and extricate Saudi Arabia from the conflict, right? Because that's part of the texture here, right? Um, The provenance of the drones and apparently cruise missiles or some kind of missiles is Iranian. Now, you know, the Saudis made a big display of that. They laid out all of the material there and they had a big press event. But here's the thing about about figuring out who did what to whom. Since 9-11, and since it's come to come to pretty much everybody's understanding, it's it's fairly widely accepted, I think, that the Saudis, at least on a semi-official capacity, had a functional part in the um, implementation of the 9-11 attack. And what followed after that, all of the obfuscation and the all the countervailing theories and all the conspiracy theories and everything, it seems like we're in a miasma of perpetual doubt about anything, particularly in the Middle East, because it's so hard to know who is behind what, because there are so many proxies and so many double-blind proxies and so many actors 
who have different allegiances, or maybe they got um, the word go from somebody who they think is country X, but it's actually country Y who is intervening. So can we ever really know anything? It's kind of an existential question in terms of, of, of these kinds of attacks in the Middle East. But that being said, I think there is a fairly good case to be made that Iran was in some way, shape or form functionally behind this, if not directly uh, the author of it. In other words, did, it, did the missiles and drones come across the Persian Gulf? That I think is going to be a harder, uh, a harder case to make, particularly since everything that I'm reading is that they came out of the north from Iraq. And that was one of the first uh, debates with the Iraqi government saying, wait a minute here, we didn't do this. Um, and, and the reason they were doing that is because it looked like it was pointing towards them as opposed to pointing, pointing out of the north as opposed to pointing out of the west, which would be Yemen. So the interesting thing about that is that it has led to kind of a sort of a stalemate in terms of a response. And if, if the Iranians were, let's say, more functionally involved in this than just handing over materials and then somebody authored it on their own at the local level, a proxy in a militia or a proxy in Iraq or Houthis working with a militia or proxy in southern Iraq was behind this. It goes to show the extent to which Iran is um, on the march in terms of boxing in the Saudis. And I think what they sense is two things. If, if, the, if the Iranians are functionally behind this, one is that the presidency of the United States is incredibly weak and not functioning in any kind of, of traditional way. And therefore, they can take advantage of that weakness. I think they look at what's happening and happened with North Korea and they say and they sense that Donald Trump in his in his sort of callow transactional way is somebody who can be easily exploited and taken advantage of. That's one thing. I think another thing, and this is something that came up in um, the modern diplomacy piece that just was published a few hours ago, they probably know that there's an internal issue inside Saudi Arabia where uh, Mohammed bin Salman's brother, Abdul Aziz, has been made oil minister and is that's his older brother. And apparently there is a potential um, a competitive power structure inside Saudi Arabia because many people inside the ruling class of Saudi Arabia are growing disenchanted with Mohammed bin Salman. And some of this, I think, also comes out of the United Arab Emirates, where Mohammed bin Zayed, who has been reported to have been functionally behind, I'm using functionally a lot here, functionally behind the ascendancy of Mohammed bin Salman in the Game of Thrones when that was being played out, Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ, kind of hand-selected MBS and made sure he became crown prince because that was somebody that he felt that he could either work with or perhaps control because the UAE is in many ways the biggest power broker in the Persian Gulf right now outside of the Iranians. All and, right, so so can I let me let yeah. me functionally interrupt yeah. here. <laughs> yes, please do. Uh, and and let me ask a couple of um I don't know about follow-ups, but just throw out a couple of things here. Yeah. So first of all, uh there's this question. I think we back up and we ask, okay, so uh, I hear from the chattering hyenas of the pundit class, uh, some of whom uh, know what they're talking about, most of whom are rooted up their own asses, uh, that, oh, well, this is definitely Iran, so let's skip over that part and let's get to the part where we talk about how we respond to Iran, right? Sure. And I'm going to say, okay, let's let's stop right there real quick. Um, the main argument that I can see, and I mean, it, it makes some sense to me, but I'm not an expert, right? The main argument that I can see is that there's a level of sophistication involved in this attack that's definitely beyond the capabilities of the Houthis on their own, likely beyond the capability of an Iranian-backed militia operating out of Iraq, unless it had the direct involvement of Iranian technicians, right? So so, so the, the, the question here is that is this attack sophisticated enough that we can say definitively 
repetitively that some level of um, you know engineering know-how was involved here. I think the answer say, seems I, to be yes, but, but I don't know gonna, what you think. But let me counter that because I'm going to say maybe not because one of the interesting textures is that the um, Abacoc, that area and the oil, the other oil field, the Aramco facility and the oil field that were the targets, these are places with a relatively high percentage of Shia. And if you know anything about what's going on in Saudi Arabia, they have a Shia underclass governed by the Sunnis. And the Shia underclass often ends up getting their heads chopped off when they when they make trouble because they are they are not treated like the their Sunni uh, compatriots. Well, the, so 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 here's the thing about that. Like, all, right. Let me, wait, yeah, let me all right. All right. OK, go ahead. Because the, the one of the theories is, is that because they are often employed by Aramco and in the oil fields, because they're part of this working underclass, they can function as spotters. They can they can develop intel that can be passed through to militias so that you don't have to have a high level of uh, a higher level of sophistication to find the targets, to spot the targets, to come up with the coordinates. So it could be that they actually had really good intel on the ground, functional intel on the ground that could then be passed through to militias. So here's the thing about that. Um, I, I I do understand that that's a possibility, and I'm not going to discount it entirely. But as somebody who has followed uh, you know the Middle East fairly closely for a number of years now, I know that anytime anything ever happens in Saudi Arabia that disturbs the social fabric and that upsets the crown prince and the and the monarchy, it's always blamed on the Shia of the I, eastern yeah. region. It of is course. it is always you know in particular it is the Katif province specifically, and the the Shia of the Katif are blamed for uh, trying to bring instability over the border from Bahrain in 2011, instigating yeah. an Arab Spring in Saudi Arabia, sabotaging the oil fields. On and on and on we hear this. So so. On the one hand, there's definitely validity to what you're saying. On the other hand, I, I've seen this story play out before, you know. And so, again, we're left with this with this question. I mean, obviously, there's the question of Quibono. But even before we get to the Quibono question is, was this attack of a level of sophistication that we can say definitively it was Iran? And I, 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 I hear the neocon chattering pundits say, yes, I'm skeptical of that. Well, I mean, the, it, but that's where the qui bono question comes up, because one of the things that um, initially strikes people when this when they hear this report, at least a lot of people that I'm I'm traffic with um, is, is this a false flag? Did Saudi Arabia do this to themselves? Is this is this the regime trying to come up with a justification to go after Iran or to momentarily or perpetually spike oil prices, because that's another thing that's going on here is that there is a chronic oil glut, which we will get to uh, over the course of this discussion. And and but one of the things about that is that I don't think that Saudi Arabia, I know the United Arab Emirates doesn't, and I'm pretty sure that not only Donald Trump doesn't, but the Pentagon does not want to go to war with Iran. I don't think anybody wants to go to war with Iran. I think Bolton wanted to bomb Iran. I don't know if he wanted to go into a full-fledged war or invasion with Iran. I mean, it depends on how, how much he's talking to the Mujahideen al-Khalq, him and Giuliani, who you know were fronting for them for a while and getting paid. But um, I don't even think that Netanyahu wanted to go for a full war with Iran. I think what they were always looking for were, was sort of bombing to try and send a message, bombing key capabilities, maybe going after some of these drone facilities or missile facilities that may have launched this strike if indeed the Iranians were behind it directly, if not tangentially. So so the qui bono becomes even cloudier. I think that's one of the things that leads me toward the idea that Iran had some functional part in this. Because I think that they see a great deal of weakness on the part of the Saudi regime, particularly Mohammed bin Salman. And also the key thing 
the key event of the last month for me is that the United Arab Emirates is pulling out of Yemen. And the United Arab Emirates started to make overtures towards Iran. And I think the United Arab Emirates is starting to cut bait on Saudi Arabia, or at least cutting bait on Mohammed bin Salman. So I think MBZ is starting to triangulate his, his position away from Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. And that, I think, sent a signal to Iran that, that maybe now is the time to destabilize Saudi Arabia, because I think that if they think that their sanctions and their crippled position has a lot to do with the close-knit relationship between MBS and Jared Kushner and Donald Trump, I think they would be right. Boy, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot there, and and there's a lot that remains unsaid, and I, I we probably would have to do an entire show just on regional geopolitical questions right. because you, you didn't even mention Qatar, which really figures centrally in all it's of this. Huge. Qatar, Qatar had grown closer to Iran in recent years, looking to jointly develop a gas fields they in are, the Persian they are Gulf, doing that. right? And they yep. are doing that. Uh, similarly, you've had a lot of shifting between the United Arab. Emirates, as you mentioned, the Saudis and, and, and others. But without going too deep into all of the regional uh, uh, context here, I do think that we still have to ask a, a fundamental question. What is the conflict in Yemen? Because the idea here is that we're supposed to be drawing a direct connection between the war in Yemen and what happened in Saudi Arabia, with the implication being that those who are behind, quote unquote, the war in Yemen were behind what happened in Saudi Arabia. But that presumes that there's somebody, quote unquote, behind the war in Yemen, right? right. If you listen to Pompeo and Bolton and these types, they've been saying for years, even before Trump's presidency, that the Houthis are little more than the Iranian proxies, right? right? That these are that they're that they're just the puppets of Tehran. When in fact, it's actually not even close to true. Uh, the Houthi movement well predates any contact with Iran with the Iranian government. There's no evidence that Iran was ever involved in the early stages of the development of this movement right. as it attained the name Houthi after its original leader uh, and so forth. This was a a tribal and a clan based movement that was in, involved in you know, generational struggles on the Arabian Peninsula. Moreover, Yemen has been ground zero for so-called al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula over the yep. last decade. There's been ground zero for a number of weapons smuggling networks. Uh, it is considered one. It is considered a quote-unquote arms bazaar. It is one of the central black market spots in the world to buy weapons. If you wanted to buy a drone on the black market, you'd be going to Yemen these days. If you wanted to buy a cruise missile, you'd be going to Yemen these days. So... My, 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 my point in saying that, and I guess my question to you is, do people even really understand the nature of the conflict in Yemen enough to really place it all into its proper context? No, of course not. And they, I don't think anybody even knows that recently on the other side of the Houthis, there has been a split and a factionalization of their opponents. So, so the, the thing is kind of blowing apart into, into tribal conflict, which is not un uncommon. And I think you make a great point about Iran. See, the, the, I think it's important to note that Iran and their support for the Houthis was a logical response after the, after the conflict already began. It, it, wasn't it wasn't part of the genesis of the conflict. Of course, why, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they support the enemy of their enemy? Or Right. I mean, it just makes all the sense in the world. That's how things are done in the Middle East. So I of course. And, and, look, and, I, and 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 by the way, I think the reason why it's so important to Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and why the United States supported them is not because of Iranian involvement or trying to to stem the tide of of the growth of the Iranian empire, as it's often been called, particularly by guys like Pompeo. It's because it's right at the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. And there are three major transmission points for a huge percentage of the world's oil. One of them is the Strait of Hormuz. Another one is the Suez Canal, which interestingly is, is 
is where it's right there with you know Egypt and who's running Egypt that would be America's you know latest dictator du jour right Al Sisi and and the Bab el Mandeb Strait is the other one and right across from the Bab el Mandeb Strait is Djibouti and what's a Djibouti Camp Lemonier which is a longtime U.S. military presence. And that and the so, and the center of U.S. drone presence in it, East it, Africa, the exactly. main U.S. military facility for East Africa. Exactly. So controlling that oil choke, choke point is what this is really all about as far as the Saudis and the Emiratis are concerned or were concerned when they started this thing. I think now they just don't know how to extricate themselves. Well, the UAE does. They're just they're just leaving, leaving the Saudis kind of holding the bag and um Oil is at the root of what's what's going on there. It's at the root of what's going on, at least in terms of the Saudis and uh, and U.S. Uh, back backing of the Saudis, and certainly Iranians. The Iranians' desire to counter the dominance of the Saudis and the United States of global of the global oil market. Well, there's so much to say about that. Um, <laughs> so I, it's almost difficult to to really find the right the right place to begin. I guess we I guess we could say maybe we should define then what's happened to the global oil market um, over the last let's say eighteen to twenty four months and how you think that really is informing a lot of the political developments that we've seen around us. You had a piece, uh, I believe, I, now I, I had it in front of me, now I don't anymore, but I believe it was it was something to the effect of uh, D- uh, Donald Trump's oily presidency. Tell us what you mean by oily presidency and how that's playing into what we're seeing around the world. Well, the main takeaway from everything we're seeing is that the world has more oil than the world can use. There is a chronic glut, and it is, it is, it is, um, shape. It is completely shaping the way geopolitics is playing out. It's not that oil is, hasn't done that in the past, but it's doing it in a very odd way because we've had peak oil. We were thinking about peak oil all the way up to the Iraq War, and I look back at the peak oil craze. And I wonder how much of that was actually uh, manufactured to gin up acceptance of U.S. oil imperialism. Oh, my gosh, we're going to run out of oil. Oil is going to be gone soon. Okay, yeah, well, maybe that's why we should be in Iraq. And maybe that's why we should have a military presence in the in uh, the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. Maybe that's why we should you know, have this global empire because, you know, the oil is going to run out. And then if oil runs out, it's going to be Mad Max, right? Well, peak oil is garbage and it's been proven to be garbage. And we're actually talking now about peak demand, a point at which the global demand for oil is going to decline precipitously over time. And there is going to be uh, a problem of stranded assets, not the loss of oil and what we're going to do to replace oil, but what's going to happen when there's the price point for oil is going to is going to um, um, be demolished by the break-even price of oil, and make oil untenable as an economic principle, as an economic enterprise. And you know, BNP Paribas had a very interesting study. Um, I think they issued it about four or five weeks ago, and I'm actually writing about this right now. My next piece for Truth Out. And they project that the break-even price for gas is going to have to be between nine to ten dollars a barrel, and diesel between seventeen to nineteen dollars a barrel within the next fifteen to twenty years to compete with the combination of renewable resources and electronic uh, electric vehicles. So, okay, if I'm understanding you correctly, and I, if I could draw this out for sure. listeners a little bit, then. What you're telling me then is that over the last few years, there has been a, a, a steady realization in various corners of the globe that uh, political developments around the world need to be framed such that there is uh, an artificial scarcity created, yes. a, a, a scarcity that is continually propped up in order to artificially basically manufacture demand for oil. Not just demand for oil, but to keep the 
the break-even price, according to the Federal well, Reserve, restricts supply. That's what. Yeah, restricts supply is. because the break-even price for a barrel of oil it fluctuates depending on oil field to oil field, grade of oil to grade of oil. It's between like 32 and 65, but the the Federal Reserve of Dallas they say that the general break-even point, the basket price, I guess is what sometimes it's called, is about 50 bucks. So if you look at the price of oil right now, it has been it has been hovering between 52, 53, and 64. The Saudis, their break-even price is officially listed at $40 a barrel, but the IMF puts their break-even price at more like $80 to $85 a barrel because their economy is so dependent on oil and their budget has ballooned based on projections of oil's price that have not panned out and the fact that they are the third most expensive military on the planet. They're spending money hand over fist on military equipment, which is, if we want to get back to that, how could they have this incredibly expensive military and have these not high-tech drones? I mean, these are not low-tech weapons, but but to say medium-tech weapons, all supposedly, this is what I, I read earlier, pointed in the wrong direction. So that's why the attack was successful with this incredibly expensive military. Well, they've got to meet their budgetary requirements. And, you know, the last year of Obama, the Saudis were having problems paying their civil servants. Now, that's with the uh, with the uh, so they've so they need the price of oil to at least be in the seventy dollar range. It's gotten there one time in the last uh, 14 months. With this attack, the price of oil spiked. They said it was a record growth, like 20% growth in the price of oil. Still, it only got to like 70 bucks on Brent, and I think it was it was like 68 bucks on West Texas Intermediate. Still, that was below the peak for this last year, and that's with this incredible instability caused by one shutting down a huge portion of the world's oil supply, which is was you know histrionic and oh there could be war in the in the middle east which you would think would send the price skyrocketing oh it it didn't it didn't even go past the yearly high and then it came back down and i think like west texas intermediate is like 58 brents at like 64 or something like that at close of today that is not a great economic situation for the saudis or for really any oil producers, you have to have your break-even price somewhere in the 30s to 40s to to, to live on an, a barrel of oil being in 50 to 60 dollar range. So, if let's just add a little a little to this. So, geopolitically speaking, the world's largest oil reserve, Venezuela, the third or fourth largest. Iran, and they also have the second largest gas reserve. That gets to Qatar and the shared gas uh, field they have in the Persian Gulf that they are jointly um, developing and um, is kind of like a time bomb in the Middle East because guess who doesn't have a lot of natural gas? Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. By the way, China this year is scheduled to become the world's largest consumer of natural gas. So, um, so Venezuela, Iran, and I think number five or six, depending on, on who you look at, Libya. I think maybe they even dropped to seven. If you look at three flashpoints, well, Venezuela's oil is basically being kept off the market by uh, ins- an insane level of sanctions by the Trump administration. Iran's oil is being kept off the market after the Iran nuclear deal was nixed by a, 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 a sanctions regime that Pompeo and Trump have both said is designed to zero out Iranian exports. And Libya's production has been basically halved because a guy named Commandant Haftar, who was once trained by the CIA back in the 80s, I think, suddenly decided of, you know, eight or 10 months ago, he was going to attack Tripoli. Barry said, why are you attacking Tripoli? It, it was it befuddled uh, you know the the punditry class, the people who who you know the kind of people at 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 think tanks. They're like, why is he doing this? Well, the funny thing is, is he was being funded by the UAE and the Saudi Arabians, and he got on a phone call with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump touted Haftar 
in contradiction to the stated policy of the U.S. government, which was against him attacking Tripoli and said, yeah, he's doing a great job and he's on his on his way to securing Libya's oil. Well, their oil is not being traded at full capacity. So if the price of oil can't even exceed a yearly high with a drone attack across the, either uh, the Iraqi desert or across the Persian Gulf by the great boogeyman of, of, uh, of U.S. policy, Iran, if that can't get the price of oil over $75 or $80 a barrel, imagine what would happen to the price of oil if Venezuela was at full capacity, if Iran was at full capacity, and if Libya was at full capacity. That's where the rub is. And this is without, by the way, the oil in the South China Sea being fully developed. And now you have China and Russia beginning exploratory drilling in the Arctic region. So that oil hasn't even come online yet. So essentially, the planet is awash in oil and the major conundrum for what I call the empire of oil, but let's just say for petrostates and the states that support petrostates. And in a way, the United States is a petrostate because it's more or less the world's leading petroleum or hydrocarbon producer. I don't want to say petroleum, hydrocarbon producer, is how do you keep the price of oil high enough to keep it economically viable when there is so much oil on the market and even more that's being kept off the market? That, that is a profound question, and, and one that is so profound, we're going to tackle it on the other side of the break. So enjoy the music. I will come back with the rest of my conversation with J.P. Satilli of the News Vandal, newsvandal.org. Get on the website, sign up for the newsletter, listen to the music. We will be right back. Some gasoline. Hey, boy, don't you be obscene. Counterpunch Radio, chatting with J.P. Satilli. J.P. is providing us with a functionally effective <laughs> worldview that he has uh, cobbled together from his uh, news vandalism. Um, anyway, J.P., um, we, we covered a lot uh, in the first half of the conversation, so let me let me try to see if I can parse through some of this, because I think that your I think that your thesis is fundamentally correct uh, that oil really is driving a lot of this, but it seems to raise as many questions as uh, providing answers. One of which, how is it that we find ourselves in a situation where uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia, these oil producing, um, oil dependent, uh, you know, states within the empire? 
How is it that they desperately need to prop up oil and prop up the oil price at the at the very same time that the chief adversary, meaning Russia, is desperate for oil prices to go up? So we find ourselves in a very interesting strategic situation here where the United States and the Saudis, on the one hand, want to benefit at the expense of Russia— and that can that can be seen in a number of contexts at the very same time desperately seeking to raise oil prices which benefits Russia as much if not more than anybody else and what does that actually reflect and does that ref- reflect maybe one of the uh dividing lines within the ruling class in the United States oh i think that's a very interesting point um this is what trump's presidency is all about i see trump as he did not design it, but his presidency is the is the fruition of a what's called OPEC plus. For many many years, you had OPEC. Russia was not involved in OPEC, and what does OPEC do? It's a it's an oil cartel, and often what it finds itself doing is ratcheting back on production to try and artificially inflate the price of oil. You know, recently, Starkist Tuna, I think, got hit with a massive fine by the United States government for price fixing in the tuna industry. Uh, apparently, there's going to be more of that to come on, on tuna and seafood price fixing. That is no no good. But in terms of price fixing in the oil industry, not a problem. OPEC's, OPEC's been price fixing forever. And one of the fascinating things is that in the last two and a half years or since the coming since the inauguration of Donald Trump, the Russians and the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates have been coordinating their production cuts for the first time ever. And those production cuts continue to be coordinated and extended. It's called OPEC plus and it's actually something a guy named Kirill Dmitriev, predicted months before Donald Trump was elected. Kirill Dmitriev is the head of the um, the Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund. And that Sovereign Wealth Fund is obviously fed in no small part by Russia's significant, uh, particularly gas, but also oil, hold, uh, oil reserves. They actually have the world's largest natural gas reserves. They have, a, they have a pretty significant oil reserve as well. And Kirill Dmitriev's Sovereign Wealth Fund has often invested alongside the sovereign wealth fund of the United Arab Emirates. That sovereign wealth fund is run by Mohammed bin Zayed. And what I postulate in a piece that I wrote called The Deep State of Denial about Trump's oily presidency, which you can find on newsvandal.com, it is not for the faint of heart. I mean, it's not something that you, you're probably going to read in one sitting. It's incredibly long. Uh, it's heavily hyperlinked. Everything that I put in there, there is there is some corroboration, there is some news story that goes with it, or some data point. But you know, read it, make your own decision. But I thought it was very interesting that Mohammed bin Zayed, Kirill Dmitriev, and Eric Prince, and perhaps a representative, a Saudi representative, got together in the Seychelles. To talk about something, and that was an, uh, a fam- that's the famous Seychelles meeting that was organized by a guy named George Nader. George Nader, a convicted pedophile who was recently arrested for child sex trafficking. He also, by the way, set up a Trump Tower meeting that most people have not heard of. There was another Trump Tower meeting, and Donald Jr. was at the Trump Tower meeting, and Nader came with representatives of uh, for Mohammed bin Zayed and Mohammed bin Salman and uh, a, a company called Psy Group. And Psy Group is a kind of a Cambridge Analytica type of company, kind of a black cube company of former Israeli intelligence officials. And they've done a lot of anti-BDS propaganda work in the United States. And they've, they, they can do basically that Cambridge Analytica stuff. And Nader said, hey, you know, MBS and MBZ, Don Jr., they would like to help your father get elected, and so they'd like to offer you the services of Psy Group. Now, we still don't know what, if anything, Psy Group did, but after I think the Times broke the story, Psy Group uh, suddenly disappeared, and I think they reemerged as another company. But 
what I'm postulating is is that is that Donald Trump's presidency represents a new shift in the global oil power structure that brought Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Russia in alignment with each other. And it was in their interest for Donald Trump to become president in no small part because they knew that the first thing that he was going to do was turn Iran into a flashpoint. And keeping Iran's oil and gas off the market was important to all three of them. And Donald Trump did just that. He destabilized the markets because it was every 90 days, are we going to re, re, uh, revalidate the the agreement? Are we going to keep in the nuclear deal? Will he? Won't he? Is he going to stay? Is he going to go? That happened a couple cycles. That did what? It destabilized the oil market. The price of oil went up. As I point out in my in my piece, you can see, I have the chart there. You can see there is a Trump bump in the oil market. And um, and then finally he pulls out and he pulls out. He does what? He heavily sanctions uh, Iran, keeps their oil off the market. That's in the interest of all three of those players. I think what's interesting also is that the, the United States oil industry, United States based oil industry, maybe after the fact got on board with this. I, you know, it's hard to know, although they did spend a lot of money on Trump's inauguration because I think they saw that a rising tide lifts all tankers. And in fact, they were struggling under the Obama sort of fracking palooza because what the fracking palooza of Obama did, in addition to despoiling many, many aquifers and causing a lot of earthquakes and probably a lot of illness, is it completely destabilized the oil market, the global oil market. There was a point in the – I think it was in the, at the beginning of the final year of Obama's presidency when oil dropped to $26 a barrel. So if you think if you look at the break even price for oil fluctuating between 35 and 65 but generally falling at 50, oil at $26 a barrel is death. That's death. Let's back up for just a second because there's a couple of things that are associated with that window of time that you're talking about and and this is where the analysis of oil or or rather I should say the analysis of global politics solely through the prism of oil can be very problematic because sure. because you can read it both ways you know and sure. and you could look at you could look at things that happened in 2013 14 15 uh, particularly when oil just plummeted from a remarkable high where it was regularly bouncing around between 100 and 140 dollars yeah. a barrel uh dropping all the way down to basically 25 bucks a barrel at the lowest point in i think it was late 2014 um and what that did was really ushered in the wave of counter, uh, you know, counter revolution or right wing reaction all through Latin America. It's what broke Venezuela. Yep. It's what it's what broke uh, Dilma Rousseff and Lula and the Workers Party in Brazil. It's really what let what what left them politically weakened and open to the right wing attack that ultimately uh, knocked them out of office. It's what really brought down much of Latin America. It it in many ways impacted quite a lot that benefited the empire. So from that perspective, just a few years ago, the empire was benefiting from the collapsing oil price as it was able to flex its muscles all over the world and kind of fill the vacuum, as it were. Right, because we just... yeah, you break the producers and what you do, if you have the ability, it's basically sort of Walmart or Amazon principle, right? If you have the ability to absorb the low cost that your competitors cannot absorb, you can then come in and absorb their assets at pennies on the dollar and monopolize. Right. And this is not to suggest that this is all orchestrated from the beginning and all well planned out in some kind of elaborate global conspiracy. Rather, I think this is simply how the market has functioned. And yes. I think this is how the empire has kind of responded to and anticipated and driven the market in that Absolutely. regard. But that then but that then raises another question. And this is a question that I've wrestled with for a few years now, and I'd like to get your take. So in 2014, you see the collapse of oil, and this is under Obama, and all of those things that you mentioned uh, are true. And just a couple of years later, you see Donald Trump, and Donald Trump presents, in my view, a, a uh, historic 
conjuncture or maybe a div- division within the ruling class where a segment of the ruling class in the United States clearly and unmistakably aligned behind him and supported him and drove him into office when at the very same time clearly major segments of the ruling class opposed him and did not want to see this come to fruition. So my question to you is then, can Donald Trump be seen as simply an oil president or does he represent a set of interests within the ruling class that extends beyond oil, but within which oil is the dominant player? Yeah, I mean, that is such a, an interesting part of this because I think a lot of this has to do with China and the idea that there is a civilizational struggle afoot with China. And, you know, I... I remember going to Capitol Hill when I was at the Center for Defense Information as a defense policy research associate. And you go up to Capitol Hill. I was very interested in Taiwan and China at that time because my master's degree was in Asian history. And uh, and the China scare was all over the place at the end of the 90s. I'm sure you recall. A lot of it had to do with the Clinton administration's tight relationship with Chinese investors, which we can get into Walmart and, you know, the offshoring of of production and all that stuff and most favored nation status and Johnny Chung and the Buddhist temple, so on. But guys like Bill Gertz, who I still get a kick out of, he's still writing and he's writing for the Washington Examiner. And, you know, it's it's almost like uh, like clockwork, like every three days, there's the histrionic, you know, the Chinese are coming piece. Um, I think there is an element of right-wing ideology behind a section of the ruling class that sees Donald Trump as a vehicle for creating kind of a large um, intercontinental alliance of, of northern peoples against the coming onslaught of China. And one of the ways you control China is you control their access to energy. And I think that there is a part of that in there. But I think really the the predominant part of the sort of the ruling class that has utilized Donald Trump is the old traditional deep state. If you were to make a Venn diagram of where I what I think the deep state is, you take defense, you take oil, and you take Wall Street. And where those three overlap in the Venn diagram in the center, I think that's where you have the traditional deep state, the deep state that was founded at the beginning of the Cold War by the Dulles brothers and, you know, with uh, with corporations and 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 Wall Street bankers using the CIA as sort of a sort of a proxy goon squad that they can send around the world to um, protect uh, and abscond, protect interests that they already have and abscond other interests. So that they wanted, financial interests that they wanted. And I think that what Donald Trump represents is kind of the last smash and grab for some of these elites to take the US oil-driven empire such as it is and extract as much wealth as they can before the end comes. Because I think for a lot of them, they see the end of oil coming. I think the end of oil is, is right there on the horizon. I think they look at what's happening with climate change and public opinions on climate change. Why is Donald Trump doing things about efficiency standards? Why is he so recalcitrant on climate change? Because anything that forestalls any action that curtails the use of hydrocarbons is one more day of profitability for a for a resource that is in is would I mean if it wasn't for government subsidies and intervention in the market and artificial scarcity and restrictions on things like rebuilding infrastructure. If you're going to rebuild infrastructure now, it would actually be more like the New Green Deal than it would be like building infrastructure in the beginning of the 20th century. The transmission lines, you, how would you build them? You would build them to accommodate new forms of electricity. And, and you want smart grids that could actually move power around because you need to, you need to you have, have power flows because you, you don't, you, you're not, your transmission is... is going to have to accommodate things like wind and solar, you know, places like Texas, which is leading the country in wind 
capacity. They have massive wind farms they're building, building in Texas. Same thing as with Iowa, two red states, right, that went for Donald Trump. So I think that climate actually plays a big part of this in terms of these old established elites and their financial interests. Now, if you're talking about, are you talking about also sort of the the Mercer right-wing ideology thing where we look at Russia and and uh, Alexander Dugan and this idea of creating sort of a bulwark. I think that that's in there, sort of a you know a, a white Christian bulwark alliance against the, the the coming onslaught. I think that that's also in there as well. Yeah. But go ahead. To me, to to, to me, uh, I think that's part of it. But I mean, ultimately, to me, it's a matter of the nature of capital and 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 which which segments. Uh, uh, of capital, which sectors of capital are, are most behind Donald Trump and which are most opposed. And, and, and frankly, you know, you see things like oil, you know, big oil or weapons manufacturers, as you said, but even down to seemingly more benign parts of the economy, right? Those that are most heavily rooted in national production, ones that are not as deeply enmeshed in global supply chains and global markets and access to global liquidity, to, to global finance, right? Those those sectors of the economy, I think, see Donald Trump as a tremendous danger, right? Big tech, right? Google and Apple and companies like this, they don't want anything from Donald Trump. They don't see Donald Trump as anything but a hindrance to what it is that they want. But a company like Exxon or a big steel manufacturer, what or or what? Ha- Actually, steel is not even a good example anymore no, because, yeah, because of the because of the other issue that I was about to get to. But but even so, uh, um, this kind of economic activity that's rooted in national production—that's where I think Donald Trump is able to really maintain the favor of major segments of the ruling class, and that's why, despite everything, he hasn't collapsed under the weight of his own bullshit. Yeah, well, and here we are back to my Venn diagram, right? It's oil, defense, and and to some extent, Wall Street. Now, Wall Street, I mean, why wouldn't they be on board? They got, here's a trillion plus dollars. Go ahead and buy back your own stock. You know, yeah, well, I, uh, see, I, I see them on both sides of this. One, well, of though. course, but, but that's, I mean, Eric, that's Wall Street, isn't it? In a nutshell, <laughs> I mean, uh, that's Wall Street, true. we're going to make yeah. money on the on the spike of the market. We're going to then we're going to see the, the crash coming. We're going to bet against it. We're going to sell you things that we're betting against. And then we're going to make money after it crashes because we'll make money on the shorts when the crash happens. And then when it crashes, we're going to either we're going to ha- already have accrued capital or we're going to get additional capital from from a bailout. And then we're going to buy up all those assets that you had to abandon for pennies on the dollar. So, I mean playing both sides of the of of any any game is is literally what wall street does for a living but i think you make this you're making a very interesting um point about national versus global globalized production and these global supply chains that have been initiated and i do think that that is i think it's kind of ironic in a sense you know for many years i've been a critic of trade deals i've been a critic of offshoring production of um, of the relocation of manufacturing and so on and so forth, particularly during the Clinton years. I was a big critic. I've been a big critic of the Clinton years and the Clinton brand of neoliberalism. I see Bill Clinton is basically, we've talked about this in the past as being the completion of the Reagan revolution happened with Bill Clinton. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about Walmart and China and all that most, most favored nation status. I think one of the ironies is, is that all of these elites rushed into that globalized version of neoliberal capitalism. And then what happened is one day they woke up and they said, oh, wait a minute. China actually got rich off of this. They're no longer a backwater that's using night soil out in the provinces to to try and fertilize rice paddies to barely feed their rapidly expanding population. The the the. Um, the coalescence of the one-child policy with a massive influx in manufacturing production and, and a manufacturing growth of a manufacturing economy suddenly lifted up a massive amount of Chinese out of poverty. And all of a sudden, what they saw was that the gap between the super wealthy United States, where you had less than 5% of the world's population 
consuming between 25 and 28% of the world's resources. And the lowly Chinese who they could basically use as wage slave labor, that gap has suddenly closed. And as the wealth has been more distributed throughout the global economy and equalized, suddenly a lot of these elites said, oh, wait a minute, we don't like this. This we don't like. We liked it when we were using them for cheap labor and we were able to take those products and come back to the United States and sell them to consumers who we were flooding with credit so that we could turn them into debt slaves. We had the wage slaves making products that we could sell to the debt slaves. Now all of a sudden the Chinese say, oh yeah, now we got money. Now look at, look at, uh, look at our coastal cities. Look at how giant and gleaming they are. Look at all of those towers. Look at this infrastructure. Oh, and by the way, we're going to become the world's largest producers of solar panels. See, it still does come back to energy ultimately, because I think you know, one of the things that Donald Trump has been um, been active on in terms of solar power, solar power is trying to stem the tide of Chinese solar panels into the United States. So, so I, you know, I interestingly they had this. They called them the Asian Tigers at once. Sometimes they were called the Mini Dragons or the Asian Tigers. They had that dragon or tiger by the tail, and then it grew and came back to bite them. And then I think you see a reactionary impact of that among the elites who are behind Donald Trump, and they're selling that to the people who support Donald Trump. They have woke up one day and realized there is a tiger in their tank. Oh, well played. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I, yeah, I was holding on to that for about seven seconds longer than I thought I could. Um, so, all right. I guess the, uh, we're we're well over our time here, but I will throw one other question out there and uh, make sure to make this a 20 to 30 minute answer if you could, JP. That would be nice. <laughs> sure. um, so final question, though, and I think that this is relevant here. Against the backdrop of all of this that we've talked about, you know, stretching the, you know, running the gamut from geopolitical issues in the Gulf to, you know, Donald Trump and, and, and the ruling class, against the backdrop of all of this, there is this giant issue of a trade war happening right now. And that trade war, I think, complicates our understanding of what's going on in the global economy because to look at just these oil prices would be to look at this whole situation from a truly one-dimensional perspective. So I know I'm asking a very large question here and asking you to put it into a very small nutshell, but the trade war and its impact on the global economy. How is that reflected in some of the things that we've been talking about here? And do you think that this is something that is going to continue in the long term? Well, I think there is a case to be made that if you think Donald Trump is really, really bright and Bob Lighthizer and the team around him is really, they're really, really bright. You could say, well, what if what they were really thinking is we're going to destabilize oil markets and we're going to do things like Iran and cutting off Venezuela's ability to export oil, not just because we want to simply inflate their artificially sustain the price of oil, but because we need to artificially sustain the price of oil because we are going to radically impact the price of oil by stemming demand by instituting this trade war because we have this long-term plan where we're going to try and break global supply chains that go in and out of China because we want to curtail and contain China economically, and we're going to have to just pay this price right now. And to basically get our oil masters on board, what we have to do is modulate the impact on their bottom line by, of having this trade war by doing these other things to artificially inflate the, inflate the price of oil. Is that one of the things you were getting to? Yeah, I mean, in, again, not, not to make it seem like we're talking some kind of overarching conspiracy, but rather that there is a strategic calculus yes. in which manipulation of oil prices it goes hand in hand with manipulation of global supply chains sure. and manipulation of the geopolitics. Yeah, and I don't... I, I just – if somebody thinks that this is being being conspiratorial or conspiratorial thinking, I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, this is business planning. You know what I mean? This is – Yeah, it's just how the world – I that, mean, it's that, how the world yeah. operates. So, 
So there is that. And I think a lot of this does have to do, I think the the hard ideologues, like when the Mercers were really behind Donald Trump and Bannon, you know, Bannon is fixated on China. I think there is a significant amount of of fear and trepidation about about America's ability to compete with China in the long term and that that this trade war is really all about that. Now, I think the the there is a way in which you can conduct a trade war to try and curtail the Chinese, but it's not being done wisely. I think if personally, if I was going to run a trade war with China because I wanted to relocate some productive capability and manufacturing capability in the United States, or I wanted it to simply go to Vietnam because, okay, folks, you want to know what's really happening here with the trade war? It's not that the factories are coming back to, to the United States. It's that they're going to Vietnam. Vietnam is like one of the hottest hottest economies in the world right now because it's starting to absorb the the productive capability of China because it's not a target of the trade war. So, But let's just say you wanted to bring it back. I think what you would have to do to modulate that is have a significant Keynesian demand side influx of capital into the hands of consumers in the United States to stoke growth in manufacturing here domestically. That's not happening. So I don't see an inherent wisdom in the trade war. I see it as a punitive kind of death rattle at the end of the movie attempt to try and do something in, a, in an environment and on a playing field that is, that is um, already lost. I mean, I, I just don't think that you can break these global supply chains and reinvent an economy that hasn't really existed since since the the 60s frankly i mean the the american the old iron triangle of the, of the american economy which was oil defense and the auto industry it that does not exist and you know god love the uae uh, the uaw excuse me not the uae the different ua the uaw for striking and and trying to to you know, hold on to some semblance of leverage and power against GM, which they seem to have, um, at least to some extent. But, you know, the the jobs that used to feed that iron triangle of of that massive manufacturing behemoth of the 1950s, I think that that's gone. And by the way, I start, I'm looking at, at Amazon, I'm looking at McDonald's, I'm looking at a ton of companies. One of the things I was writing about a couple of years ago was automation. You know, if you're going to build productive capability in the United States right now, why would you even hire anybody? Why wouldn't you go to artificial intelligence and automation? And there are a number of studies that show that a lot of the job losses in the United States has not been because of immigrants and because of offshoring and manufacturing capability, but a lot of it's been done has has come down to automation. In fact, interestingly, a lot of the coal jobs that have been lost has not been lost because of a war on coal. It's been lost, one, because coal sucks and it's just not a great power source when there are other possibilities out there, particularly natural gas, but also because a lot of the coal mining process and extraction process has been automated. So on some level, I look at the trade war and I look at Trump's presidency. You know, he says, make America great again, which he stole from Reagan. Reagan was the first one to run on make America great again in the United in 1980. And when Reagan was running, he was running with Brill Cream in his hair, the guy who who was the, the spokesperson for GE, GE Theater, sort of an avatar of sort of vapid 50s manhood um, and that, um, that, that sort of sepia-toned idea of, a, of America and its halcyon days. I think Donald Trump is – he's what he's like 30 years removed from that and – and he's trying to sell something that even Reagan was being nostalgic about. So I just think it's over. I just think that that economy is done. I just don't, I just don't think that you can relocate um, massive manufacturing capability back in, into the United States. I, so it seems to me that the trade war is, is to satisfy an ideological need on the part of a core group of elites – who, who feel that their next civilizational struggle, after they've given up the civilizational struggle against radical Islamic jihadism, which has fizzled out, they're on to the next civilizational struggle. And there has been a core of elites 
since World War II that has been addicted to civilizational struggle. And I think this is the next one. And the trade war is kind of foolhardy. Um, and it's having ancillary effects like Amazon fires because Amazon forest is being being burned down, what, to meet the soybean needs that the American farmers are no longer meeting for the Chinese market. So it's so we, so ultimately the long game is is it's screwing American farmers. And, you know, I don't know, Eric, it doesn't make any sense to me as a sort of a strategic economic plan. It only makes sense to me as an ideological fixation. Well, automation is certainly is certainly an issue, and we're actually looking into automating counterpunch radio and <laughs> as soon as possible. We're going to get artificial intelligence in here and uh, brighten up this drabbled show. Uh, but yeah, I I agree with you um, on on all of that, JP. I think that the only thing is that. Um, one day it seems like there's a real long game and a master vision in all of this. And the next day it just seems like it's completely off the fucking rails and nobody's exactly. driving the crazy train, you know, and, and we're just headed, I mean, into, I mean, what's, what's darker and deeper than an abyss? Uh, I don't know. Uh, oblivion, complete and utter oblivion into the black hole of, uh, an existence that will never be again. It would um, be the cover of that, of the great spinal tap record. Smell the glove. There was smell. Of course it was What's wrong with sexy. None more black. It's yeah, the, none, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to leave it there. JP, you got to leave on a Bobby Fleckman reference. I, I, you can't top yeah. that. Well, people, people are going to, people are going to have to turn this podcast up to 11 as we close it, as we close it out. Uh, JP Satilli, thank you as always. News Vandal, newsvandal.com is the website. Sign up for the newsletter. There's a whole bunch of information there. You don't want to miss it. Truly the best newsletter out there. Uh, again, thank you all for listening. As I mentioned last week, still not sure exactly how this recording schedule is going to work out. Things are going to be crazy on my end in the coming weeks and months but we're going to make it work we're going to figure it out so stick with us and i will talk to you all again real soon